of another edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel, where we talk about everything and anything cannabis, trying to see if we can give you some information to help you navigate this space and make good choices for yourself. And today, we are so happy to have as a guest on the podcast, she's the medical director of Canna Centers, a California-based medical practice devoted to educating patients about the use of cannabis for serious and chronic medical conditions. She also treats adults with chronic pain, autoimmune illnesses, and other endocannabinoid deficiencies disorders, as well as children with, let's say, intractable epilepsy, autism, and advanced cancers. She's also the author of Cannabis Revealed, How the World's Most Misunderstood Plant is Healing Everything from Chronic Pain to Epilepsy. Please welcome Dr. Bonnie Goldstein. To let's be blown, Montel. Bonnie, thanks so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Montel. Absolutely. And you know, I've I've been involved in cannabis as an advocate now for close to 20 years. As a matter of fact, I started doing my first advocacy as soon as I got diagnosed with MS back in 2000, um, the year 2000. And you know, long before it was a green rush, long before it was a gold rush, I had really staked my position out to, to make sure people understood. I wanted to make sure that there would be, you know, people had access to an efficacious medication and had access to a private conversation with their doctor, you know, uh, about what they were using for whatever their illness was. And I know you have been involved in the cannabis movement also for quite a long time, have you not? That's right. So I started off as a pediatric emergency medicine physician. And after about 13 years in that field, I got a little burned out, especially after having my own child. And I took some time off and a friend asked me about using cannabis for her medical condition. And, you know, Montel, I didn't know anything. So I started doing research uh, for her and I couldn't believe what I was learning about and what, what the scientific um, research that did exist at that time was saying that absolutely it's medicine. So I watched her and she started to feel better. And I decided to go into the field of uh, medical cannabis here in Los Angeles. And so I've been doing it now for 11 years. 11 years. So, I mean, when you think about it, you just said you started looking at the research 11, 12 years ago. And there was plenty of research. I, you know, I, I, I have to ask you this question because as, as a doctor who's working in the field, does it not annoy you that there are so many doctors out here who say, well, we haven't really done the research? Does that yeah, drive you crazy? I, it drives me insane. And one of the biggest things that's leading the this kind of resistance, I would say, in the medical community is the fear left over from the reefer madness propaganda that, oh, it's dangerous. Oh, you know, we're going to damage people's brains and so on. Yet not, nobody knows, and especially in the medical field, people do not learn about the endocannabinoid system in medical school. Nobody's teaching about it. We have this major physiologic system in our body and in our brain that regulates homeostasis, and doctors are still to this day, the vast majority of doctors are not taught about it. Why? Because the answer, if there's a problem with the endocannabinoid system, is cannabis, and everybody's afraid because it's still a Schedule One. But the point is, is how can we ignore it? This is this is sometimes the underlying issue in our patients, and certainly when it comes to pain, anxiety, sleep, all the kind of add-ons 
that come with a, med- a serious medical condition, wouldn't it be nice to have one medicine that's non-toxic that treats all of those things? Absolutely. And, you know, the thing that's so odd about this is the fact that this isn't some, you know, the identification of the endocannabinoid system didn't come by some, and I say it this way, and I'm sorry I have to, but is isn't some fly-by-night science. This is science that was funded by the United States government, that the U.S. government actually funded the research by Dr. Mashulam, Raphael Mashulam, in Israel over the last 20 years that helped to not only identify what THC is, identify what CBD was, identified at the time, Raphael, claimed that there was about 66, 67 cannabinoids. Now we know that that number might be as high as 160-something cannabinoids. And he identified these, identified it enough that it allowed the U.S. government to seek a patent on CBD, what, 14 years ago. And then what Dr. Mishulam did was research, well, why is it that these things even work? That's how the identification of the endocannabinoid system was discovered, correct? That's exactly right. Looking to see how THC might cause the effects that it, it causes, they came upon this receptor that they had seen in, our, in the human brain and also in animal brains. And at the time, it was called an orphan receptor. Remember, a receptor acts like a lock. And every receptor we have in our body, we have the key, the chemical key for. So for instance, We have serotonin receptors because we make serotonin. We have dopamine receptors because we make dopamine. So they had seen this receptor. Scientists knew about it in the 80s, and they had labeled it an orphan receptor because nobody knew what the key was. And those receptors receptors pick up something called endocannabinoids, and we know that that's anandamide and 2-AG, which are two different chemicals that the body actually produces, right? That's right. That's right. We make our own inner cannabis, for lack of a better term. All of us make our own inner cannabis. And very important to understand is why do we have these compounds? Why do we have these receptors? And these compounds exist in our brains and in our bodies. Remember, densely populating in the gut, the brain, and the immune system. And the reason we have them is the job of the endocannabinoid system is to regulate balance, to maintain homeostasis. So I'll give you an example. If your brain is sending that message of pain, 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 what happens is your body makes your endocannabinoids on demand when you need them in the face of this pain, let's say. You make them, they bind to the receptor, and that binding to the receptor tells the cell to change its message stop sending the message of pain or dampen down the message of pain. And what a lot of people talk about with the endocannabinoid system is it is a system by which the brain and the body regulates what we call over messages. So nausea is an over message. Epilepsy, a seizure is an over firing of a message. Panic attack is an over firing, right? So Whenever you have these, your body kicks in its endocannabinoid system. You make these compounds. They bind to the receptor. It tells the cell, turn it down. You know, somebody who's getting chemotherapy and has terrible nausea and vomiting, they'll take a puff off a joint and within five to ten minutes can be eating at the dinner table, having a meal. How is that possible? Well, THC is just mimicking anandamide, your endocannabinoid, at that receptor site. You're just augmenting that system. And there's a way to do that medically for people who have, in the pediatric patients I take care of, what we call that neuroexcitatory brain, hyperactivity, epilepsy, um, um, 
uh, chronic pain conditions. Autism is, a no is one of the main things I see. Think about a child with autism. They usually have brain issues. They have gut issues. They have immune issues. Well, what's dense in those three places? The endocannabinoid system. And last year, researchers at Stanford figured out they were able to do blood work and they managed to create a test and they figured out that children with autism all had low anandamide levels, low endocannabinoid compared to children the same age who were what we call neurotypical who didn't have autism. So that is what we call an endocannabinoid deficiency. And like any deficiency in the human body, you would not leave it, certainly in a developing child, you wouldn't leave your child thyroid deficient, you wouldn't leave them vitamin D deficient, why would we leave them anandamide deficient? Yeah, and it's really crazy because what we don't understand, and most people are not willing to even do the research themselves and figure out, is that up until 19, what was it, 1937, when we passed that Marijuana Tax Act, you know, a lot of Americans don't know that we ate and consumed hemp seed products um, as porridge and as a protein source for thousands of years. As a matter of fact, you know, the United States government, when we first formed this union back in the late 1600s, early 1700s, made it mandatory. You were considered, you know, uh, a, a non-patriot if you didn't, as a farmer, didn't grow hemp. Cannabis. And, That's right. Cannabis. We grew it. And, you know, but when you stop and you think about, you know, I, I say this to people all, all the time, what so what drives me crazy is the fact that we don't look back in time with the appropriate lens. We look back in time and think that, you know, oh, in 1678, they had air conditioners. They had heaters. They had electric stoves. They had gas stoves. No, they didn't. These people were sleeping right. on the ground. You know, they were getting right. up in the middle of the night, going to the bathroom, and I'm sorry, using leaves. So life <laughs> they, was tough. Right. And they didn't have pharmacies. What they had right. plants that they treated as medicine. Right. Right. And and for what I don't understand why, you know, the people in you know your field, in the field of uh, the doctors won't accept the fact that, you know, we know now that cannabinoids and cannabis has been written about for over five thousand years in cornucopias of medical, you know, agents from China to the Middle East to South America to indigenous people here in the United States. People have always written about utilizing cannabis, mm -hmm. and not just That's you know right. for some ritualistic reason, but we literally you know I think in the in the 1800s, you know most sailors that were sailing the high open seas literally ate a porridge of cannabis every day. Right, right. And the interesting thing is for me as a physician is that the literature is out there; it exists. And one of the things I tell many of my fellow doctors is whether you like it or not, it's here to stay and it's going to be used as medicine. And there are going to be people who use it, you know, recreationally the same way people drink alcohol. Um, as a physician, though, I think it, it is incumbent on us to educate ourselves as much as possible, to fight to get it off the Schedule One controlled substance designation because we cannot do research on it. And I don't know if anybody listening understands this. When something is on the Controlled Substance Act as a Schedule One, it is considered a compound that has no medicinal value, has high abuse and addiction, which it doesn't, 
and it has lack of safety, which it doesn't. I give it to babies, and I'm a, my husband jokes around that I'm a chicken inside a mommy suit. I am a very conservative, careful physician. I take my oath of do no harm very seriously. But when you read, if you just take half a day and start just going on the internet and start reading the actual scientific articles, what you will notice is well-tolerated, very safe, very few adverse effects over and over. And again, we're talking about medical use. The intent of medical use is to take care of a medical condition. It is not to become intoxicated. And I'm actually at a conference right now in uh, Southern California. Uh, the conference is called CanMed. And uh, a, a Harvard neuroscientist presented this morning. She's been researching medical use versus re what we would call recreational use. And she has shown over and over in her research that there is no abuse by medical patients. If we trust our patients with opiates and benzodiazepines, certainly we should be able to trust them to use cannabis. No, it's I, I have I have been stating lately, doctor, and I kind of feel really strongly about it. It's like, you know, I think those who make a choice, and if you, you look at the population at large, people who gravitate towards cannabis rather than most of them don't use alcohol or use very little alcohol and most of them gravitating towards cannabis do so because they figured out that there's something about the cannabis use that affects them entirely different than maybe any other form of recreational drug that they may use. And so I've often said that I think that whether people want to admit it or not, those who think that they're using cannabis recreationally are really trying to serve some underlying medical issue anyway. I agree with you. One of the pioneers in the uh, medical cannabis field is a doctor who unfortunately we lost, but he, his name was Dr. Todd McCurria, and he was one of the first doctors in California to embrace the law back in 1996, despite the fact that the medical board and law enforcement went after him. But he has a quote, which I use often in my presentations, which is, any and all use has an underlying medical use, because it is really what, what drives people to seek it out. I mean, look, if you're a 14-year-old and you're just socializing, it might not be medical use, but people who continue to use it, they try it and say, gee, I like this. This makes me feel better. It's alleviating anxiety. It's alleviating depression. It might be alleviating pain. It's helping with sleep. It's helping with maybe undiagnosed hyperactivity. Right. Many people come to it and find, I just feel better on this. I'm not getting all those weird things that everybody warned me about. Oh, my gosh, you're going to be addicted. I can walk away from it. I only use it every now and then. You hear this all the time from patients. And, you know, from my perspective, again, I come from the medical aspect, and now my practice is focused mostly on children. With all the research coming out, with the use of cannabis in children with epilepsy and autism, even in cancer, attention deficit disorder, psychiatric disorders, we are going to look back years from now and say, oh, my gosh, how is it that the medical community resisted this? Because this Correct. is a medicine that has very few adverse effects, especially under medical supervision. Again, it, it just it's crystal clear to me. But I think, unfortunately, we're fighting the propaganda and the stigma that's kind of been left over almost all of our lives. 
I know it's still it's still around, which really just sometimes completely blows my mind. I've been at dinners where people people know that I'm an advocate. I've been at dinners with people who will make some just absurd comment about, well, you know, I don't mind that, you know, cannabis. But I, I don't like that THC stuff because you know that THC stuff. I, I always stop while you're sitting there sucking down your third glass of wine. <laughs> stop it. I mean, how how can you be so? Yeah. You know, I have to agree with you that you know right. I think what people don't understand, you know, and I've been very open about my own cannabis use over the last 20 years. Uh, I came forward on my national television show and talked about the fact that I had been using cannabis because it literally was my exit drug away from opioids and stopped me from becoming an opioid addicted person for my neuropathic pain or neuropathy that I was suffering from from MS. But over the course of my 20-year usage, you know, I have never, ever, ever felt addicted. Now, I'll tell you something. A year ago, uh, a year and a month ago, I had a major hemorrhagic stroke that, you know, I'm, I'm blessed and very fortunate that, you know, I've been able to recover from that very, very quickly and have had and the likely, almost, I think, I think it was the cannabis yeah. use that was neuroprotective. Yep, absolutely. And I, when you read the literature on the neuroprotective qualities, it is ridiculous because we don't have anything else that will do what this plant and what cannabinoids can do for us. Yesterday, I was at a talk here at this conference, and a PhD in botanical medicine uh, shared with us that he, he told his wife that if he has a stroke, the first thing that he wants is his wife to take a big, large dose of cannabis oil and give it to him before she calls 911, get it right. in his system. Because when you read the literature and you look at the people who are slaving away in these laboratories, really studying these compounds, the conclusion that all of them are coming to, and this is all over, this is global now, global research, is that the cannabinoid compounds are neuroprotective, they're anti-inflammatory, and they're antioxidant. And if your brain gets into trouble, you want them around. They're going to your endocannabinoid system kicks in when you have head trauma. Your endocannabinoid system kicks in when you have a stroke. Why wouldn't you augment that? Why wouldn't you enhance that to protect? What is what's so crazy, doctor, is that you know I, I tell you I I won't say the name of the hospital I was being treated at, but I was being treated at one of you know you know the most prestigious hospitals in all of this country, and on day six while I was laying in the bed, literally just. Barely mobile, I begged the doctors at this hospital. I said, "Listen to me. I'm going to leave here, and I'm going to go back to using my cannabis products. So, you know, please. I know this is going to help me. Let me do so." And so, on day six after my stroke, I started going back to 150 milligrams a day of CBD and started actually ingesting cannabis. Though they told me, "Don't use this in the hallways. Don't use this in the bathroom." And I figured out a way to be able to to to, to get it into me sure. while I was in the hospital. Yep. And I'm going to tell you that my recovery has been, but there's not an, a, a neurologist in my, the landscape of my healing that can explain how quickly I have come back from a stroke that they said to me that 50% of the people who have a stroke like yours normally don't even make it past day three. And right. I am literally back 100%. And I have said this, I've spoken at a couple of conferences since my stroke and said unequivocally, I believe that without any doubt, it has been my consistent cannabis use that right. actually gave me protection against right. and the damage I that could happen. Right. And unfortunately, what's happened is that doctors have been 
kind of brainwashed to insist on random, randomized controlled trials. So there are definitely people in the cannabis space, scientists and physicians who are doing that work. But at the same time, the children that I take care of, and to quote a well-known neurologist who happens to be pro-cannabis, um, uh, time or brain cells, right, in these children. You cannot continue to let a developing child have seizure after seizure after seizure after seizure while we, quote, figure it out, okay? Cannabis is safe enough for a trial in a child who's struggling with seizure disorder, who doesn't, hasn't responded to other medications or even who may want to try it first. Why wouldn't you try it? It's non-toxic. We have evidence that it works. In fact, Dr. Mishulam figured out in 1980, he did a trial of, on patients, on humans, giving them CBD for epilepsy, and he saw that it worked. And yet, because, again, it's Schedule 1, the research went nowhere. That's not serving people. That's not helping right. humanity. That's, right? not, that's so not doing no harm. Exactly. And to me, there's no reason why the research cannot go on, but also clinicians like myself should have the freedom, which we do have here in California and many other states now, luckily, where I can treat patients legally and do the, I, I, I again, I, I say to the government, let me be a doctor. Let me take care of my patients. Don't interfere with that. You trust me with all these hazardous chemicals that we infuse into people. Let me give them plant medicine. Give me a chance to do that and let the research go on. So one of our biggest impediments is the schedule one. And I think it needs to be descheduled, not rescheduled. Um, there's no, it, the safety is there. Um, and we certainly know that some many medical indications. And again, how can some, a plant that has very many compounds, how do we know it can help people with cancer and people with fibromyalgia and people with migraines and people with multiple sclerosis and autism? Like, how can it do so many things? It's that underlying endocannabinoid system that's located throughout the body that kind of crosses all of these systems. You know, when doctors go to school, we learn about the neurologic system, the rheumatologic, right, immunology, um, all these various systems. Well, the endocannabinoid system cr crosses these systems. So this is a, a nice pharmacologic target for us. Why wouldn't we use it to enhance human health? It just, again, doesn't make any sense. And the reality is, is that uh, the policies are going forward without science input and patients are seeking it out, whether or not their state allows them or whether or not, because ultimately you're going to do what's right for yourself and for your loved ones when they're sick. Absolutely. And, you know, and we, we really, really, if they, along with reading the research, I, I would suggest anybody listening in and tuning in right now, along with reading the research about what cannabis does, you should really look back at cannabis history in America, especially hemp and cannabis. This has been something that's been used in this society and was used until DuPont and, you know, uh, uh, William Randolph Hearst decided to pay the bills of a guy by the name of, you know, Anslinger to yep. ensure that they had an opportunity to create things called textiles and create, right. could continue to, to rip down the biggest trees in the United States. This is what was the motivation. Most people don't understand that marijuana wasn't made money. illegal the first time. Money. That's right. Yeah, money was the motivation. Not, Correct. And, and remember, too, when they made it illegal, they did not know the science. We are in right. a different place now. How do we continue to maintain illegality when the science does not support that? That is, to and, me, just. It's stupid and it's greedy and it's bad for humanity. 
made illegal by something called the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. And we know for a fact that, you know, at the time, LaGuardia, uh, who was the mayor of New York City, commissioned some of the top brains in America, 1941, to do a study. And they came back and said it was the most egregiously offensive thing that our government could do in stopping the use of marijuana and cannabis for, for illness. So, I mean, we know now that it just was, you know, the fact that this was done not because we were trying to protect people uh, from some illicit drug. We were trying to come up with something that, number one, we could continue to use to enslave people in strange ways, and also something that would help benefit different industries if we took this out of the equation. Let's talk a little bit, because I don't want to run out of time. Let's talk a little bit about your cannabis centers. Tell me about them, and and, uh, who are the patients that you get to see, and and what do you do for them? Well, so um, since I trained as a pediatrician, when I first got into this, it was like unheard of to give children cannabis medically. So when I first started 11 years ago, I was seeing mostly adults. And then after a documentary that came out on CNN that showed a little girl who had intractable seizures, meaning they weren't being controlled by any medications, her mom found some CBD-rich cannabis in Colorado and started giving it as an oil form. Um, She went down from something like 1,200 seizures a month down to two or three, and then she was able to go through what we call normal child development. She started walking. She started talking. She started riding a bike and laughing and going to school. And got back a quality of life that was never, ever expected for her. And after that documentary aired, it was kind of like the floodgates opened and people would find us online and call and they'd say, do you see children? Well, my background is pediatrics. I worked in a very, very busy pediatric emergency medicine, one of the busiest uh, pediatric emergency um, medicine departments in all of the country. And so I have a comfort with sick children. I'm very comfortable with that. And we started getting these kids in, and then it kind of the word spread like wildfire, wildfire because all these parents are connected on social media, right? And so I've seen probably over, I'm at the point where I'm just about at 1,000 patients or pediatrics, somewhere between 900 and 1,000. It's probably the largest pediatric practice in the country, specifically for cannabis medicine. I do am required to see that the child's been properly diagnosed. So the parents have to send me medical records ahead of time in order to be approved because I cannot see a child who has not been worked up because I don't do the workup. I'm the one who gives them and educates them and teaches them and helps the family figure out which cannabinoids are going to work for this child, which product, what's the best way to take it, how many times a day, what dose, and so on. So I help them formulate a cannabinoid regimen to help combat the seizures, the autism, the hyperactivity, cancer, and, and, and really anything else that might be causing serious medical issues in a child. And I will share with you that we have probably somewhere between a 70 and 80% return rate with success. And uh, two years ago, I joined with Dr. Dustin Sulak out of Maine, who's a doctor, uh, cannabis doctor like myself, and Dr. Russell Sinato out of um, uh, is a pediatric neurologist out of uh, the Seattle Children's Hospital, and we published a paper on our experience in pediatric epilepsy. And of 272 children with intractable epilepsy, she saw an 86% response rate. Now that's not seizure freedom, but 86% of them responded with seizure reduction. When your child's having seizures, 
you will take one less. You will take 10 less. But many of them, over 50% of them, had over a 50% reduction of seizures. This is very valuable medicine for these families. Especially, you know, I think most of our listeners don't understand that, you know, the FDA will approve a drug if it only works for 29 to 30% of the population. When you're talking about something that works for 50%, you're talking about an efficacy that is is really off the charts. And remember, too, with very few side effects. I don't say no side effects, very few. And what I have found in doing this for a long time, and I'm sure that you as a patient, and talking to other patients, you know this. Any side effects that you experience with cannabis, you can actually adjust your cannabinoid ratio, adjust the way you take it, adjust the timing, adjust the dosing, and change that so that you don't get that side effect. And so what I often tell people is that anything you read about, you say, oh, you know, I heard CBD in high doses can cause diarrhea. Well, okay, well, nobody needs to suffer with that. We can change that by manipulating. This plant is so flexible in its dosing, in its ratios, in its compounds, that you can tweak things so that you really can minimize any adverse effects. So the vast majority of my patients, look, I ask every single person that comes back in my office, do you have side effects? And I would say with clear confidence that over 90% say, oh, yeah, no, no side effects. You know, it was doing, it was keeping me up at night, so I just take it a little earlier. Or Oh, I'm feeling a little lethargic in the morning, so I cut back on my nighttime dose. I mean, everything is adjustable. We don't have that ability with pharmaceuticals necessarily because they kind of come in, you know, if the pill comes in 150 milligrams, that's what you get. Right. And then, you, or you got to do it, the doctor says, cut it in half. Yeah, really, try to do that on your kitchen table. Cut it in half. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and see if you really get a half. Yeah, I, I, I'm also, you know, really just, so happy that you know you 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 talk about the fact that not only are you getting some of these effects from patients, but how is this your practice affecting the doctors around you? Are they not starting to wake up and see? Yeah, I'm so I'm so happy you asked me that. So I would say that you know again doing this 11 years, I'd say probably the first oh. I don't know, five to six years, I was a bit of a pariah and I'm pretty sure everybody looked at me like I was some Fruit Loop doctor. Um, and oh, and they rolled their eyes. Well, she's a cannabis doctor, right? Mm-hmm. But then what started happening was that the parents of kids that were sick were starting to ask about it. And I think doctors had no choice but to start to read about it and look into it and say, oh, maybe there is something here. And what I'm happy to say, Montel, is that over the last three years, I have been contacted by more doctors than the first eight years of doing this all together, right? In the last three years, I've had many doctors reach out to me from all um, different specialties. So rheumatologists, oncologists, even veterinarians, um, other pediatricians, other um, um, doctors who are um, 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 involved in regular health care who are... Um, now interested in what's happening, some of them come and sit in in my office because there is no residency or internship on how to use these. And remember, you can learn and read the articles, but then clinical practice is something a little bit different. And that's why doctors do internships and residencies, because you get all this knowledge, a huge amount of knowledge in medical school, but then you have to learn the art of medicine, which patient should start with CBD, which patient might start with raw THC, which we call THCA, 
which patient might be better off with a one-to-one ratio versus a 20-to-one ratio? And what does even that mean, right? And really exciting for me is that I am seeing a lot of doctors come to me saying, look, I can't ignore it anymore. I get 35 questions every week in my practice. I need to now know so that I can have a real conversation with the parents or with the patient and and, and not look at them like they're crazy and say, oh, yeah, no, I don't know anything. So there are, look, are, there are so many good doctors out there. And I think, unfortunately, as a bunch, we're a little bit fearful because we have invested our lives. I mean, when I think about medical school, I didn't think I went out uh, like either on a date or went out and met friends for four years. You know what I mean? You just didn't, you, you isolated yourself to become, to learn everything you needed to learn and become a good doctor. And then you go to internship and residency where you're up for 36 hours at a time. And there's a lot of investment, not to mention all the cost of it all. Right. And I think that as a group, we want to do right by our patients, but we have a little fear for our livelihood and our licenses. And as long as you are following the laws that you have in your state, um, make sure you, you know, we're not supposed to be selling cannabis to our patients. Don't sell cannabis. You're not supposed to do that. That makes it very easy line not to cross, right? There are clear cut laws. If you're a physician and you're concerned about it, talk to an attorney. Just say, hey, I need to know about this or ask the doctor who's already doing this. They'll share the information. I can't take care of everybody. So I have to, I make it my concern to educate other physicians. I have to do that in order for me to be able to help more people. There have to be other doctors. I can't be the only one doing this. And so I embrace the doctors who reach out to me and ask, hey, can you educate me? And I joke around, it's not rocket science. If you can learn it, once you start treating patients, it's one of the easiest medicines to work with because it's non-toxic. That's great. Look, I know that we're we're short on time with you, but I want to talk to you about that way of educating doctors and educating the masses. You wrote a book that's called Cannabis Revealed. Why don't you talk a little bit about the book, where it's available right now, where people can get it? Because I think that that's something that's steeped with a lot of information that a lot of people need. Absolutely. So um, I wrote the book in response to a patient who kind of made an offhand remark in my office as I was explaining the endocannabinoid system to him to kind of explain to him why he had fibromyalgia, because we actually think fibromyalgia is an endocannabinoid deficiency. So I explained that to him. He said, where can I go to get all this knowledge in one reliable place? And I thought, hmm, I need to write a book. So I started writing it in 2014, and I completed it in 2016, and it's available on Amazon, and um, I have, there's a chapter about what's in the plant. There's a chapter about your endocannabinoid system, and then there's a chapter about the safety of cannabis, a chapter about any kind of risks for anybody who may be. It's not 100% perfect for everybody. There are medical risks associated with cannabis, but of course, once you're cautioned and you're careful, not a really not a risk that you can't overcome. And then I have a chapter called How to Use Cannabis as Medicine that kind of explains the product, teaches you how to read labels on the product, and kind of gives some adult dosing. Of course, pediatric dosing is something we have to keep and maintain kind of individual. We don't want parents just dosing their kids. Um, and then I cover 28 ailments. And then throughout the book are testimonials from patients who've had very good success. And I always tell people, I know this is not going to help every single person, but one thing that I'm very clear on is this must be an option on the table 
when you have a serious medical condition. Just as every other medicine is an option on the table, this must be an option and doctors must be knowledgeable. And that's why I wrote the book. One is for families, patients to get a basic understanding and for physicians also to get that basic understanding of kind of where people are coming from. And it's interesting, I have some families who actually buy an extra book for their doctor and they hand it to the doctor and say, hey, I thought you might like this. It's written by a physician who's in clinical practice and it's just a nice approach. And then they don't, they don't harp on it. It's kind of like, here's the information, doc. I kind of need you to know this, you know, without hitting them over the head with it. And I, I think it's not a bad idea because Unfortunately, again, going back to doctors aren't being educated on it. It's not being taught in medical schools, and then it's not included in your internship or residency. Right. If somebody wanted to get a hold of your center, why don't you give out the website or how they could reach out to get some information from you? Sure. So yeah. uh, very simple website, canna-centers.com. And I actually think the canacenters.com comes to, if you forget the hyphen, it also comes to us. And there is some information on there about the medical practice. Um, there's some uh, videos, and there's also a contact us if you're interested in reaching out. Um, I do know of other doctors that practice in the space that are excellent, so if I'm not able to help you, um, then we can certainly refer you to somebody who's on our list. Well, Dr. Goldstein, I cannot thank you enough for sharing today with our listeners of uh, Let's Be Bubble Montel. And, you know, if at any point in time in the future you want to come back, we'd love to have you on because I think the information is information that people need to hear over and over and over again. You know, you you made one comment about, you know, you, you need to have – you know, as a country and as any country in the planet, no one goes to the war against an adversary without having a full quiver of weapons. And there's no right. reason why you think you can go to war against illness without having a full quiver of, re of, of, of weapons. Now, you know, cannabis could be one of those other arrows in your quiver that might actually hit the target where the other arrows didn't. So I No question say, about it. Yep. You know, so I can't say thank you enough for being a part and make sure people understand they can go up on canacenters.com and get as much information. Make sure you get a copy of the book, Cannabis Revealed, which is going to give you, I think it's, it's about how the world's most misunderstood plant is healing everything from chronic pain to epilepsy. But Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, Dr. Goldstein, thank you for joining us today. And I can't wait to talk to you again. Thank you, Montel. And thank you for your advocacy. It's very brave. <laughs> Absolutely, yes, ma'am. Thank you. Okay, guys, thanks so much for tuning in. Oh, yes, ma'am. Thank you. You too. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your conference. Look, I thank you guys at home for listening and tuning in. If you like what you hear, make sure you send us a review. And make sure you share this podcast with others because it's information that everyone can use. I'm Montel Williams. Thanks so much for being a part of it.